0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. What an interesting statement from the Bank of Japan. Did they simply blink?
1: No, I don't think they uh, blinked. I think they did something very interesting. They put out measures that were smaller than we had been expecting, but they put out some signals that were actually a little bit stronger. The measures I think you've already gone over uh, with the ETFs and things like that, but the signals were quite, quite important. One was that they are going to reconsider uh, their policies in a special um, uh, session. Uh, at the regular monetary meetings, but a special initiative in September. Uh, The bank stocks rallied on the view that maybe that means they're going to pull away from the negative interest rate policy. That's not what they said in the statement, and they could actually even go the other way. But the notion that it's on the table was a very, very interesting signal. Uh, The second one uh, was a signal that they're trying to be very close with the government, something uh, also repeated by uh, Finance Minister Asso. Two very big signals.
0: Dr. Feldman, I believe Toyota needs Abinomics. Is Toyota and the rest of corporate Japan speaking with the government and speaking with the Bank of Japan about their urgency?
1: Well, um, I can't comment on individual companies. Yes, uh, but uh, the corporate sector is actually a very diverse sector. Uh, they, uh, s- some of them, are export oriented and uh, like a weekend. Uh, but large global corporations often will have a lot of production facilities around the world. So a weaker yen is not necessarily uh, good uh, if it goes too far even for large exporters uh, like some of the auto companies. On the contrary, there are also some some locals as well. So all the authorities fi- uh, in fiscal policy, monetary policy, try to stay in very close touch with uh, the corporates and they talk to them all the time. Uh, there is not a lot of uh, pushback on the yen at the level it's in right now, uh, importers uh, gain Exporters lose a little bit, but there's not a lot of pushback at the moment.
2: Are we going to see, uh, Robbie, Governor Kuroda surprise the markets in coming months? Because this seems to be what he's good at. He wants to surprise, either on the upside or the downside.
1: Uh, Well, um, it's uh, obviously a good thing if he surprises to the upside. But uh, the surprise that uh, he came up with in January with the negative interest rates uh, sort of worked, uh, worked the wrong way. Um, so, I think uh, that was one issue that people have been worried about. Also, inside the Bank of Japan, uh, there is now some view that continual large surprises are actually destabilizing for expectations. Uh, and so, what they need now is a consistent, clear, on-track policy, uh, which is understandable, how they link information with action. Uh, I think BOJ is sort of moving a little bit uh, more in that direction rather than uh, let's think of new surprises. Uh, it seems to be that Hans. they are trying to improve the, call it the, the forward-lookingness of uh, expectations by calming down a little bit.
2: So uh, Hans, overall, what's your, your grade? If it were a report card, what would you give Abenomics? i think uh, uh it was a brilliant concept and uh, it uh, um, you know the c arrow system uh, worked very well at the starting point of it but uh we should have seen a little bit more of structural reform that would have been productivity enhancing and that would have as well as then over time supported inflation expectations. I guess that was a shortcoming on that side, not being bold enough on structural reform. Hopefully, we are still seeing the increase in inflation and inflation expectations because when we go through our yen analysis you know, and think what is really the driver for the yen, it is all about inflation expectations. You need to lift inflation expectations and then you can get a weaker yen. And without that, then uh, you have a deflationary increase in real yield differentials working in favor of Japan. In favor of the, of the Japanese right. and not in favor of Japan.
0: Dr. Feldman, you've talked about Elizabeth Gray Vining, mm-hmm. her book on the, on the Emperor, and I think of Ruth Benedict in The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, which is about the generational change a generation ago. What's the demographic and social backdrop to this new frustration over nominal GDP and animal spirit in Japan. Is there a generational shift now that Mr. Kuroda has to deal with? There are a lot of uh,
1: elements in the demographics that are pushing uh, the economy in many directions. I think the most important one uh, is that uh, the upward shift of female participation uh, is probably over and likely to be overwhelmed in the next couple of years by a lot of aging of the population uh, in the uh, 50, 60, and 70 uh, uh, year old age group. It'll be very difficult uh, to raise uh, the uh, labor force in the face of this very large demographic uh, group moving out of the, the basically the 60s uh, age age uh, range. <coughs> Uh, And in that context, that means the unemployment rate will be pushed uh, down much, much further. Hans's point earlier about globalization is very important. But when you have uh, something like uh, about a million people coming out of the labor force over the next five years, if the uh, upward shift of that um, uh, profile doesn't happen, that's a very large number, and it should put a lot of pressure on the uh, labor market, and that would impact uh, prices. So that's the thing that uh, I think is most important in the demographics for monetary policy.
3: So investors have a lot to focus on in different parts of the world. The man who is paid to keep track of it all is our friend Adam Posen, uh, the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Uh, Adam, the question if you ask somebody is, which of your children do you love the most? Uh, (laughs) None of them. Of the two crises uh, sort of underway here uh, of uh, faith in either Japan or Italy, which worries you the most?
4: Uh, actually, Michael, the answer is somebody else's child worries me more than my own. So it's it's Brexit and Poland that worry me. Italy, as you've just rightly said, we're going to get some kind of resolution on Monte de Pasque de Siena, and even if we don't in the short term, it's not a systemic risk. Japan, as we discussed, you know, they are having problems with the yen, but the major exporters in Japan can survive with a yen over 100. It's, it's going to be okay. But you look at Poland, which is repudiating the very neoliberal free market policies that made them a success for 30 years, and you look at Brexit, where everybody looks at some short-term data and says, this really isn't so bad, and deludes themselves. So it's somebody else's kids I worry about. We'll get to what you were just saying in a second. I want to go back to the
3: Italian question because, yes, it's not systemic in terms of the banks immediately. But uh, you've got Matteo Renzi trying to uh, modify the Italian constitution right. to make reforms easier in the long run. The banks threaten that significantly. If he can't do that, his government falls. There's talk that uh, Italy may be in big trouble, which drags down the Eurozone. Is, is, yeah. that, is that a threat or a symptom?
4: Uh, It's a really good point on your part, Michael, because that is what's driving this. And that's part of the reason why I or my colleague Nicholas Verone, who covers European finance for us, think there's going to be a resolution is because everybody's looking around and saying, if Renzi loses this referendum, which will probably be late October, the alternatives go from power vacuum to terrible. And nobody wants that. But if you do a bail-in of I don't know, a million or more retail investors and in banks in, in Italy, he will lose that referendum or at least they worry he will. So that's why, part of perversely, that's part of the reason why I think there will be a resolution in Italy in the near term. I think, however, we got to keep some historical perspective. Remember, Italy went through periods in the 70s of outright terrorist violence, of repeated government overthrows in in a, both a democratic sense but also just turmoil. This is not like that. Uh, There are large parts of Italy, particularly in the north, that are perfectly well-functioning. Even southern Italy, the tourist economy is perfectly well-functioning. So again, it's understandable that people are focused on not having another major economy leader in Europe fall to an anti-EU party, Mm. but it's more stable than people give it credit for.
0: Dr. Posen, I want to talk about a Matthew word, optimal. And the the modern theory is that we come up with an optimal set, a choice set. We have optionality as we move forward through time. Have we backed ourselves into a post-crisis corner where we're going to need a lot more careful static analysis which is one step forward and a cloud of dust sit there see what's happening another rate increase forward a cloud of dust sit there and see what's happening or can we really keep with the theories that we've been using
4: as usual tom you're you're hiding in your math some very profound questions um i think there's two points that come out of what you say the first is that the theories that macroeconomics has relied on and perhaps too certainly in fact too heavily for the last 30 years have been too concerned with the long run and with assuming things equilibrate or get to a, get to something optimal in the long run, and that people are very forward-looking. And that's clearly not only uh, unrealistic as an assumption, but it's led to unrealistic policy choices. And so there has to be a much more major rethink in macro than we've seen. And that means that you don't end up with these determinate outcomes, that here is the precisely optimal policy. Yeah. The second thing is what you raise about like with interest rates, make a quarter point hike or like the BOJ, make a small move and see what happens. And to me, it's less about the huge uncertainties now, although those exist. It's more about, again, that you fundamentally, strategically don't want to be worrying so much about manipulating the long term. You want to be sure you're doing stuff that's robust in the short term. And this, I think, is the underlying strategic problem for the Fed. Is And I've been saying this to you actually for close to a year now, is the move away from inflation targeting at a forward-looking two-year horizon to inflation targeting as it goes, waiting to see how inflation turns out. And Charlie Evans, president of Chicago Fed, raised this as well last month. Yeah, and,
0: and Mike, I mean, you've been so far out front, Mike McKee, honest. I mean, it almost goes to Bullard's idea of regime is a more static jumping approach to the next step. Versus the mumbo-jumbo that we've been and, – and, 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 Mike, to be clear, Claret has been outstanding on this. Richard Claret has been real clear on this.
3: One of, one of the issues, and we've only got about 30 seconds, Adam, is that the Fed seems very much too reactive to minute-to-minute changes in financial yep. markets.
4: No, I agree. And they sense that they it gives the impression that they feel constrained and they feel scared and I don't think they should or have to do that way. And so in a in a in a ironic twist, if you committed to the idea that you were waiting for results to come out, say on inflation before acting, you would free yourself from some of these short term constraints of chasing the market.
0: Michael McKee and I watched the festivities last night. But we had one eye. On the Japanese news flow. Michael, discuss the news flow and go to Dr. Posen, please.
3: The news flow was fairly light. The uh, Bank of Japan met. The Bank of Japan decided not to make any kind of major efforts. Uh, Kuroda san, under a lot of pressure to deliver something, gave uh, a small increase in QQE, their, their bond buying, asset buying program, and said they would study other options. Uh, Adam Posen is the president of the Peterson Institute. Adam, they don't have a lot. I mean, they have options, but they don't have a lot of options that uh, anybody thinks are particularly going to do much from a monetary policy stance now to boost inflation or growth. Uh, They're kind of at the end. If they want to do something, it's going to be up to
4: uh, Prime Minister Abe. Yeah, I think that's largely fair, Michael. I mean, you've got – but I think that's not something specific to Japan or the BOJ and Governor Kuroda. That's a general point, that monetary policy works best, is most effective when you've got a liquidity problem, when you've got a panic, when you've got a crisis, or when you're trying to disinflate. Uh, Monetary policy doesn't work as well when you are at the zero lower bound and you're trying to inflate, and there isn't a panic. And there is no panic in Japan. There is no lack of liquidity in Japan. There is no crash of asset prices in Japan. So fiscal policy is the way to go, but I just want to emphasize. Japan deserves credit, because they're actually going to do some fiscal policy, and in fact, I gather that the stimulus package Abe is about to present is more structurally sound than a lot of past Japanese stimulus packages. The question is, why isn't the rest of the G7, the G20 doing something?
3: Well, let's let's unpack that. What does more structurally sound mean? Fewer bridges to nowhere, more uh, return on investment kind of projects?
4: Yes, but even more so. Um, looking at issues of the labor market. How do you support the long-term development of the labor market? And, I mean one of the big successes of Abagnomics that people mentioned but doesn't still doesn't get as much recognition as it should is the huge increase in female labor force participation in Japan over the last three years. And it's up over 850,000 people which means up over 1% of the workforce. That's a very big number and that came from some judicious fiscal moves in terms of cutting taxes, they should cut more, but cutting taxes on second incomes for married couples, investing in public childcare. There are a lot of things in that area where you can spend on enabling the labor market, enabling families to cope better, and that improves your labor supply and flexibility.
3: Now, uh, they're going to be spending, uh, according to the Prime Minister, something like 267, A billion uh, billion dollars. I I almost said the word additional.
4: The question is how much
3: of that is additional. How much of it is what you like to call fresh water?
4: Exactly. And this has always been a question. So the headline number they've leaked or released is 27 trillion yen, which is a very big number. It's it's close to 5% of GDP. And they're not going to spend that much in one year's time. Um, But I think the usual rule of thumb has been the actual real water is usually less than 50% of the headline number. My opinion is that in this case, it's going to be closer to above 50%, closer to 60% of that number. So still a a very good two percent of GDP over the next year or two. And um, part of the reason I think it's going to be more real water is when they've built those bridges to nowhere and things like that, in Japan, like in the U.S., they have a system where local and regional governments have to put up part of the money for construction projects and politicians try to claim credit for stuff that's already happened. And so that's part of the reason the real numbers are not as big. And, if they do this kind of social spending, direct tax cuts, then there's no question what the real number is. Sorry.
0: No, don't be sorry. Let me ask a question. I say this with immense respect. What would Fred oh, Burks to do? I mean, the answer for Peterson Institute was free markets have an awful lot to do to solve international economic challenges. Can we do that now or is it so messed up that the Fred Bergston solution won't work?
4: Well, to be fair to Fred, uh, who's the founder of the Institute my predecessor, he was always very interventionist in currency markets, remember. He was a big architect backer of the plaza and Louvre Accord in the 80s. And he... Thank you, William Klein. Yes, Bill Klein, as indeed my colleague has been part of that. Um, And he and... Bill Klein and Joe Gagnon from the Institute now are all pushing for various kinds of currency measures that would make TPP more palatable to people and in their view make it more fair. So it's not we've never been all about nothing but free market. But I will say since I took over a few years ago, and it's less to do with me and partly reflecting reality, we've had to think about more aggressive fiscal interventions, more so-called unconventional monetary interventions, and ideally more coordination. Um, Again, Fred was always in favor of coordination, but what we're talking about now is more behind-the-border kinds of coordination, like on fiscal policy, like on labor regs. And that is reflecting both the state of knowledge we've earned, uh, not we the institute, but we the profession, for people who are paying attention, and the state of the world. It's not about just sort of dabbling with exchange rates at the extremes. you got to well, get more in your hands messier. 20 seconds.
3: Are there any countries that are going to do what you suggest?
4: Canada and Japan, uh, U.S. possibly if Clinton wins and we get a, a substantial shift in the House. All
3: right, we've got to get Adam Posen back and we'll talk about uh, what kind of fiscal policies um, would work. Particularly in the United States.
0: We've had wonderful guests this week. I mean, it's just great. It's just great.
3: Well, the focus of the morning's trade is what happened or didn't happen in Japan, where the Bank of Japan uh, did the minimum basically uh 6 trillion additional uh, ETF purchases for their QQE program not much more than that we're also keeping an eye on the stress test that'll be later today uh, in uh, the United States uh, after the market's close We'll get the results for european banks so let's focus uh, at the moment on japan bob Sinch is a chief global strategist for amherst pierpont securities and uh, spends a lot of his time studying what's happening in the currency market and that's where we're seeing the real reaction today 100 103.34 uh, uh, for your yen right now it was uh, as low as one hundred two seventy one. Does it continue to go much lower? Uh, Five times in the last uh, several decades, we've seen the yen hit 100, and two times it went below that. And when it breaks 100, it tends to go much farther down. So do we get to 100, and then does that scare the heck out of Corotasan and the folks at the MOF as
2: well? I think if it goes further, I think it would raise some concerns. You know, a lot of times when you get those big breaks, though, it's when the market has, uh, has been significantly short the yen uh, and had to switch positions more, or suddenly started buying yen assets. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case. I think the speculative positions are a lot smaller this time around. I think this is a more of a slow-moving train. We've talked before about how Japan is, is back to running a fairly large current account surplus. And so you really need capital outflow from Japan. Uh, in order to keep the uh, upward pressure, uh, keep off the upward pressure on the currency. And I just think in this global environment, you're not seeing a lot of capital outflow from Japan. Um, certainly, I think the Japanese authorities would be happy to see that. But so far, it's it's really not materializing. I think if the Fed shows signs that, in fact, they are going to be moving on rates, that's probably the best remedy right now for dollar-yen and, and keeping it above 100.
3: Well, at this point, uh, what can the Bank of Japan... If anything, do uh, about the currency. I mean, makes me think they should just buy treasuries.
2: (laughs) Well, send us their yen. (laughs) Indirectly, they'd love to be able to do that through intervention. Unfortunately, they've got this G seven commitment, which has really restricted their ability to uh, uh, to do that. And certainly, fiscal policy stimulus. One would think, um, you know, based on sort of a a theoretical construct, that a tighter or, or a less easy monetary policy and a more stimulative fiscal policy is actually positive for a currency. So. I don't think there's much left for the BOJ to, to, to do. I think, uh, in fact, central banks around the world uh, are, in my view, running on empty, and they're starting to signal that to both Kuroda. I think we've heard that out of VCB President Draghi. Uh, I just don't think there's much left for the central banks to do. Personally, I don't think the Bank of England is going to be very aggressive in cutting rates. I don't think they want to go near the zero bound. So it's really shifting now to fiscal policy around the world it has to take up – uh, the mantle, and I think central bankers are becoming more aggressive in signaling that in their uh, in their statements and their actions.
3: You're a strategist; you're paid to think big thoughts. You've been around on Wall Street for a very long time, but uh, your whole construct there is is there any hope that gets adopted on trading desks? Or going we going to see panic when things don't happen, say in the Bank of England or Bank of Japan?
2: You know, I think markets are beginning to adjust to that, but certainly these markets are priced, I think, for continued monetary accommodation, uh, both in, in the fixed income and equity markets. So I think there could could be an adjustment process ahead if if the reality sets in that a number of central banks aren't going to be easing further, and we do eventually have that Fed hike in December.
3: We uh, just had an earnings report that is of interest to those of you who are on the um, economic part of our economics finance markets um you know try uh, focus here on Bloomberg's triathlon earnings. triathlon UPS second quarter earnings per yes. dollar 43 the estimate was a dollar forty three uh, revenue is uh 14 point six three billion the consensus 14 point six five I guess uh, million still in transit or something like that. Here's the interesting thing. Um, What we always want to do is see what their package volume is. Uh, Are more companies, more people sending more stuff? And they say, yes, at least in the United States, average package volume increased 2.5%. And next day air was up 5.6 percent, ground products 2.4 percent. And they tell you, those who study these things, that um, if you're seeing the next day stuff rise faster than the ground stuff, that means businesses are needing to get stuff more quickly. And that's a good thing. Bob Sinch is uh, Chief Global Strategist at Amherst Pierpont Securities. Um, does that give you some hope to that uh you know we're shipping more stuff right now as far as the outlook for the for the economy
2: well it's not a bad uh, it's not a bad sign certainly but you know we need to keep in mind the uh the microeconomic developments here right people are buying a lot more online than they are in the uh, in the stores themselves so you'd expect to see shipments continue to uh to rise, uh, uh, given the the growth in consumer spending, that that actually isn't a terribly impressive number. I think so. Uh, again, I think it suggests a, an economy that's uh, cruising along at about two percent uh, uh, growth on a fairly steady basis. That's okay, but not great.
3: We're talking with Bob Sinchi's Global Black Cloud for <laughs> Everest Peer Bond Security. Um, we are going to get uh, GDP today. And uh, everybody was relatively optimistic until yesterday. And, uh, and we saw a surge in imports that has knocked down everybody's thoughts about growth in the second quarter. How worried should we be, and, you know, about the number, whether and, it's... And,
0: and Mike, to be clear, this is the first look It's second quarter GDP. Is that right?
3: Yes. This is the first time we get uh, second quarter Do GDP. Do you guys trust the number?
0: Big... Is, that, is that like, Mike, how, how squishy is that number we're going to get?
3: Well, obviously, uh, it can be very squishy. The first look at first quarter GDP doubled by the time we got to the third. Yeah. Uh, the f- the third look.
2: Yeah, there's 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 quite a bit of uh, of adjustment and and further data to come in. Unlike China, which has their data all locked down two weeks after the end of the quarter. How do they do that? And, uh, <laughs> yeah,
3: they get together and say what 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 is GDP, and they say what would you like it to be? Let's and, work
2: backwards. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Look, uh, uh, Steve Stanley, my colleague, is looking for actually a number just above 3%. He had been all the way up at 3.3, 3, scaled that back a couple of tenths based on that uh, trade number yesterday, although some of that we think was price from uh, from higher energy costs uh, translating through into both higher exports and imports in the U.S. So uh, we think it's, a, it's about a 3% number. You put that together with about a 1% number in the first quarter, guess what? You're back to 2% or so. So I think that's uh, still the operable trend.
3: What – and I know this never happens. And, Steve, if you're listening, I'm just going to use it as a for instance. But what if Steve's wrong? It seems like markets have been banking on the idea that growth has significantly picked up from uh, a lousy first quarter.
2: Well, you know, the consensus, I think, is somewhere around two and a half. Um, so, uh, you know, I think his view is it's above consensus. Uh and I think that's very reasonable. You know, the, the, the consumer came back in, uh, in very strong fashion in the second quarter. Um, I think the, the numbers in general have been more upbeat in the last couple of weeks, and I think that was reflected in the Fed's assessment uh, earlier this week that some of their worst uh, worst fears had not materialized. Uh, certainly, I think the, uh, the fears about Brexit have been overdone. We've, we've felt that all along. So I think we're just setting a a more stable tone, and I think we'll add to that with the GDP report this morning.
0: The question, Bob, since I got last night, and I've asked this question, Mike McKee, at least 42 times, why not round it up to 43? If they raised rates, what would happen? Uh, Not a lot. Yeah, people are dazzled by the three of us sitting in this room angsting over rates. They're like, what would happen to my life?
2: Uh, I, I don't think a lot. You might actually start getting a little bit of yield on your uh, on your savings deposits. But I think that is the surprise here. The, the angst that the Fed shows in, in raising rates by a quarter of a percent when they're still below 1% is, is in a longer-term context, kind of mind-boggling. It, it, yeah. It's really not clear to me. Why they think that's so terrible? Obviously, they're concerned about it transmitting through the economy through financial conditions. But the longer currency. you put it off, the longer you yeah. put it off, the the worse it's going to be. The currency, I, I think, right now we've seen some weakness in the dollar. Certainly, the the biggest acceleration of the dollar was in late 2014 and 2015. And I think that's passed, and I think, you know, we're starting to see that show up in some of the U.S. data. So I don't think they should be terribly uh, afraid of what it does to the dollar. Um, I don't think they should be terribly afraid of what it does to financial markets. They're eventually going to have to, um, you know, stand on their own two feet. Uh, you know, our view is they should just get on with it, but uh, this is this is not the that, – that's not this Fed.
3: Get on with it. Uh, raise rates September and then – what?
2: No, I think Steve thinks they'll. You know, this is the Yellen Fed. They'll probably hold off till December, and then I think they really, they're really going to take a good look at inflation. Because if you look at, at service inflation, the non tradable goods part of uh, of the economy, uh, core services inflation is increasing over three percent. Or prices are increasing over three percent year over year. It's quietly starting to creep up. And, and I think there's a, too strong a focus on the good side of the economy, or what we call the tradable, tradable good side of the economy, where prices are still weak from global competition. But in the domestic market, definitely there's some upward pressure on pricing uh, on the services side of the economy where you don't have that international competition.
0: You mentioned earlier, and we've had a nice fun with yen renminbi and brutal moves. I just did a 20-year study of how quickly – the push against Abinomics has occurred on a one-year basis. The rate of change has never occurred in 20 years, in two decades. What is the effect of the failure of Abinomics on China?
2: You know, I think China was uh, would certainly hope that Japan would be a market uh, for them in which they can uh, can export. Um, now we don't have a strong consumer sector in Japan. It's a very aging consumer sector in Japan. Uh, but certainly, um, those are the two biggest economies across Asia, and they would like to be supporting one another. Right now, the only thing Japan, I think, is getting from China is disinflation. You know, we just saw the, the core mm-hmm. inflation readings for Japan out for June last night. Most core inflation mem- uh, numbers in the, in the developed world are stable to higher. In Japan, it was 0.9% late last year. It's all the way down to 0.4% year over year. Uh, It's heading in the wrong direction. And I think they need a a real rethink of what they can do to get uh, inflation pressure stabilized in Japan.
0: And, Mike, this goes to something I used to think about over the weekend, which is this deflationary and disinflationary impulse that upsets assumptions, models, and certitude.
3: Uh, The whole issue of helicopter money is – you spend more fiscally, and then you figure out a way to keep it off the books is what it kind of comes down to. Given, I think that's
0: the smartest definition ever. have heard. Given the,
3: the, their debt-to-GDP ratio is 228 percent, anything going to happen on the fiscal side that could change that inflation calcul- disinflation calculation you talk about?
2: I don't really think so. I think a lot of it is, is demographic around the world and particularly a demographic factor of an aging population in Japan. Um, you know, I'm not sure um, why they necessarily think higher inflation is good for an economy with a with an aging population on fixed incomes, but that sort of has become the, the objective of central banks around the world. Uh, but I think in, in general, um, you know, Japanese consumers are kind of doing okay. Inflation is very low. They'd probably like a little bit higher uh, return on their investments, uh, particularly in the government bond market. But in terms of helicopter money, I mean, look, if there's fiscal stimulus and the BOJ is buying up uh, assets very aggressively, effectively, that is helicopter money. I think we're just basically, no. you know, toying around <clears throat> with definitions. But but central banks around the world have been buying government bonds. And if there's fiscal no. spending to go with it, that's that's the uh, result.
0: Bob Sinch, thank you. Very generous of you to be with us this morning with Amherst Pierpont. fortunate past the duck pond in wellesley and down route 16 tucked away there is wellesley high school and if you go to old wellesley high school the only old there's only one wellesley high school it was iconic and if you don't pay attention to the dana hall girls you maybe do well academically end up in luxembourg go to boston college then john hopkins and begin an extinguished career in foreign policy that would be nicholas burns ambassador good morning
5: Good morning. Great to be with you.
0: You know, I look back at your history and your path of your excellence in foreign policy, and you must witness now the foreign policy debate of the United States of America. And I can only think Nick Burns cries. How do we get our foreign (laughs) policy debate back on track?
5: Well, actually, I think it's going to be one of the um, big issues in this election. As you know, I'm supporting Hillary Clinton. And I'm advising her. It's the first presidential campaign I've worked on since I was at Wellesley High School, and um, that's because I was a career diplomat for a long time with the U.S. government. I think you know the the, the big debate is going to be: Are we an open society, or are we a closed society? Donald Trump wants to build wall a wall against Mexico. He wants to keep Muslims out of the country. He wants to abandon the NATO alliance, and he's questioned whether or not we should even be allied with Japan and South Korea. And to me. These are fundamental building blocks of American success and American strength in the world. I work for Republican presidents, and I work for Democratic presidents. All of our presidents since Harry Truman, every single one of them, Republican and Democrat, have believed that we should not go it alone in the world. We cannot be isolationists. We've got to lead, and we've got to have friends in the world, because we don't want our taxpayers to shoulder the burden for international engagement alone, and we don't want our soldiers to have to do that. That's why we have friends, and I'll just say this very briefly, I was American ambassador to NATO on 9-11. And then day after 9-11, early in the morning of September 12th, all of the NATO allies, every single one of the Europeans in Canada came to us, to me, and said, we want to fight with you against Osama bin Laden. We invoked Article 5 of the NATO treaty. That, that's an attack on one of us, is an attack on all of us. All of those countries went to Afghanistan with us. All of, us, all of them are still there. That's the value of an alliance. And for Donald Trump to question whether we should belong to it when we're the leader, I think it's, it's fundamental. So your question is the right question. Who are we as Americans? I think we're internationally minded. We want to keep our commitments. And we want to be strong at home. And part of being strong at home in the 21st century is having friends and alliances around the world.
3: I don't want to uh, imply that Donald Trump knows what he's talking about, but I, I do want to ask you, since you're uh, an expert on this and what? Um, when questions are raised about our alliances, particularly uh, NATO, uh, it's not right. unfair to say, does it work the way it should and how can we improve it? And I'm wondering what you, what you think of that argument that maybe NATO does need some repair work.
5: Oh, I think it does. I, I think that's fair. Um, you know, we're an alliance. We're, there are 28 countries in NATO right now. And what we say is that every one of us should spend at least 2% of gross domestic product on defense. The U.S., for a long time after 9-11, was spending over 4%. But the problem was a lot of the big European countries, Germany, Italy, Spain, were spending well below 2%. So it's very fair to say to the Europeans, you all need to do more to shoulder the burden. But the problem with the way Trump has done it is it's almost like a Tony Soprano protection racket. If you don't pay up by Monday morning, I'm going to cut you off. And that's not how—that doesn't work with Angela Merkel. It doesn't work with the Italian prime minister. So you have to push them. But I think we're better off pushing them um, not by threatening to walk away from them, but by, re, by appealing to their self-interest. Now, since Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine in 2014, we've seen 20 of the 28 allies increase defense spending. I was in Berlin three weeks ago, and Angela Merkel announced that week that Germany was going to engage in a major expansion of its defense and and defense spending. So I think they're going in the right direction. It's good to push them, even publicly by some of our politicians, but to threaten to walk away, I think that's got everyone really concerned in Europe about the basic credibility of the U.S. Well,
3: let's ask about that. Uh, He suggested in an interview with David Sanger of The New York Times that he's willing to let the Baltics go. Uh, What does that imply for the United States?
5: I think that would end American credibility in Europe, and here's what I mean by that. The Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, are members of the NATO alliance. They came in formally in 2004 under George W. Bush's presidency, and we have pledged to defend them, and they've pledged to defend us, and I already said they all came to our aid on 9-11. If Vladimir Putin were to attack one of the Baltic states and NATO did not respond, then I think Mm. NATO's finished. And it would just encourage Putin to do what he does, which is to um, chip away at people's borders and try to expand Russia's influence. Now, he's rational. He's not irrational. If we say to him, look, here's the red line in Europe and don't cross it. If he believes that we're strong, he won't cross it. The Soviet leaders did not do that during the Cold War. So if Donald Trump says, I may not defend the Baltic states, which is exactly what he said to David Sanger in that New York Times interview last week – Then I think he really smashes American credibility. He he introduces a doubt about whether we'll keep our word. That's fundamental in foreign policy. And I think it was a big mistake of judgment by Donald Trump.
0: Nick Burns, um, it would be rude of us to ask you your politics. We're not going to do that. What I am going to say is you grew up in a milieu where there were four Democrats in Wellesley, three in Weston, (laughs) and seven in Lexington, and that was about the extent of it. And the world revolved around someone my grandparents worshipped, Edward Brooke, a senator from Massachusetts who did a lot first. Do you see any reality that Republicans will vote for Secretary Clinton?
5: Well, first of all, thank you for all the shout-outs to Wellesley, Mass, because I love I know a little bit about it. Uh. <laughs> I grew up uh, with Republican parents, um, but parents who – my mom and dad, um, I think because of the end of the Vietnam War and certainly in the case of my dad, Be- uh, Watergate, became very disillusioned with, um, with the Republican Party. And I grew up as a teenager at Wellesley High, self-described as a Democrat, uh, in, in the mid-1970s, but when I went into the Foreign Service. At the age of, I think I was 26, 27, when I went to the foreign service. I, of course, had to be neutral because I was a civil servant for the United States. And throughout my entire career, I serve Republican presidents as well as Democrats, And we cannot be involved in politics. Uh, there's a law that prevents. Yeah, that. I know. Yeah. Uh, and it's the right law. <clears throat> Since I've left government, I have come back and uh, I'm I'm registered as a Democrat and I'm I'm working for Hillary Clinton. No. But I'm bipartisan, and I think there is room in this election. For a lot of Republicans to support Hillary Clinton, I have a number of Republican friends who are completely disillusioned with Donald
0: Trump,
5: and I think either we'll silently support Hillary Clinton or publicly. Okay, Nick, we're
0: going to have to cut it off there. The next time we talk to you, I want you to fix Red Sox relief pitching. Nick Burns of Wellesley, Massachusetts, and of course, with his public service to the nation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast subscribe and listen to interviews on itunes soundcloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer i'm on twitter at tom keen michael mckee is at McConomy. before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide on bloomberg radio